Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting, high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Board Bench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Boardroom's Best. This is Nancy May, your host, and I am here today with my very good friend, Perry Granoff, who is the co-founder and managing director of Granoff International. Perry is one of the world-renowned experts in DNO, directors and officers, liability insurance. He's an attorney himself. He's consulted with companies all around the world. He's worked in the, in the industry for over 30 years. And he's an author of several books and numerous publications, of which will be available in the show notes. But before we get started, I'd like to just say a really great thank you to everybody who listens to us, who subscribes. If you are not a subscriber, please do so. It's easy enough to do. We are on five different broadcasts right now and looking to be on more. So stay tuned on that. So let's get going with our show. Welcome, Perry. It's great to have you here as my guest. Nancy, thank you so much. It's great to be here, and thank you for the opportunity of sitting down with me. I really always love sitting down and talking to you about this particular subject, as dry as it may be to the outside world, insurance. I mean, really, but it's, I I would much rather know how to do a CYA (laughs) beforehand, as opposed to thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm you know, neck deep and what do I do now type of scenario, especially as a director. That's funny. I can't think of anything more exciting than insurance. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about what directors and officers liability insurance is, because we have a broad audience, including people who may have had their goal on being a director, as well as those who are currently directors and may be a little concerned about where they are. Sure. The concept of directors and officers liability really began in the 1930s, but really didn't become a well-recognized area of coverage until the 1980s. So directors needed to cover their CYA back in the 30s, too? And and, exactly. And it kind of arose out of the, um, the, depression? the depression, yes, and the stock market crash at that time. The idea of directors and officers liability is based on the concept that, especially historically, directors and officers would be the local um, manager of the drugstore, the local bank president, and people who've worked in communities for years, built up their name, built up their reputation, built up a small fortune. And in order to be comfortable going onto a board of a corporation and not worried about losing your assets. Hard work to earnings over the course all, of a lifetime, exactly. right? Exactly. The, the idea of, of insurance was introduced in order to give those directors and officers sleep insurance, knowing that they could serve on the board and you know, not have to worry about you know, protecting, you know, losing their, their assets. And their... But, but they still had to do a good job. Well, they did. And I have to say, though, up until perhaps the beginning of the 1980s, uh, there, there wasn't much directors and officers liability exposure. It wasn't hmm. really until the first financial crisis of the mid-'80s that directors and officers, um, especially directors and officers of community banks, you know, who would w- work in the local communities, would sit on banks. The, and, the uh, doctors, the dentists, the real the estate agents that were all referring business to the bank, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the, all of a sudden, those directors would find that they were 
faced with a situation where the bank was closed Oops. and the FDIC, or if it's a savings and loan, the FSIC at the time, would come in. And in order to recover the assets that they paid out to save the bank, they would sue the directors and officers. Great way for a doctor and a dentist to lose their entire practice, right? <laughs> Wonderful way. Um, sometime thereafter, a plaintiff bar began to develop with the idea of being able to hold directors and officers accountable for deviations or um, you know, drops in the value of, the, of stocks of publicly held corporations. And this was just before publicly held corporations. Well, the, originally, directors and officers liability insurance policies you know, certainly would apply to, to publicly held corporations. But the idea of the security class action lawsuit, which was a, a lawsuit brought by a shareholder of a corporation Correct. who would seek redress for, from the directors and officers for misrepresentations as to the performance of the company. Not knowing that you were actually doing this intentionally. I mean, they weren't necessarily doing it intentionally. So ignorance is not an excuse, in other words. Well, that's a really interesting question because for liability to attach in a security class action, there has to be some element of... um, Intent? No. uh, no, It's actually... element of culpability called scienter. There has to be... And scienter is, is what? Scienter is an element of recklessness that's elevated to the point where it's not necessarily dishonesty, but it's an element that, they, that their conduct should have been... A, At a higher they, level? It should have been known. It should, they should have been aware of the conduct. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's been identified in, in certain cases. So it's as, kind of like, I think I've done something wrong, but I'm not sure I've done, done something, no, something wrong? No, something like... I should have been aware of this. Okay, so they I didn't do their sleep. homework. Yeah, and Got it was it. just so obvious. I should have been aware of it. And to the extent that um, that you have scienter, liability under the federal statutes attaches. What's really interesting, though, in, 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 in the whole concept of security class actions is that for a director and officer to have coverage, mm-hmm. they can't be found to be dishonest in their actions. However. For liability to attach, the liability has to be so high up. It has to be beyond negligence. It has to be beyond gross negligence to this element called scienter, this gray area. Hmm. So Very interesting, actually. No, 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 it is interesting. I mean, there's a lot of different layers going on in there. Absolutely. And and I've I've seen this likened to... um, being at a carnival and um, and you're, you come to a stand where there's a big um, pool of water and there's these plates that are floating on the water right. and you have to pitch a penny or nickel onto the plate and get it to stay on the plate. It's a very difficult thing. It looks easy. It does. But right? but what's, what makes it challenging actually for both the directors and off, for the you know, insurer, for the directors and officer defendants and for the plaintiff bar is the fact that the plaintiff bar can't prove dishonesty too excessively. They can't establish that the directors and officers were wanted and knowing and, and, and intended to do what they did. So there's a little bit of showmanship there. You know, it sound, it, oh, you know I'm, I'm thinking of the show Chicago, since you're yeah. from that region of the right. world. Indeed. And a little bit of the old razzle-dazzle, how you put on the show and how you tell the story in order to catch your victim, so to speak if you are the plank. That's right. And, and that's absolutely right. Uh, and, and you see most of these cases, these security class actions settle because on the one hand, if from the plaintiff standpoint, if they prove too much liability, too much culpability, they're not going to recover from the policy and 
and they, it's, it's questionable how much they would recover from. So the, the policy, notes. the policy is not enough to cover. The, it wouldn't respond. It would, okay. it would, it would, it would coverage would be excluded because based on the dishonesty exclusion. Got it. On the other hand, if they do hit that penny on the plate, the damages are so great that it goes way beyond the policy limits. It goes way. It, it could go to the the survivability of the company. So the plaintiff's attorney could strike gold. He could strike gold, but he, he could. Or she or could strike gold. He could, or she, or she could. And interesting from the standpoint of the insurer, if the insurer doesn't handle the case properly. They could also They could be dig held a very for the full hole. amount of the liability. Interesting. So a lot of these cases, most of them, by far, you know, 99% of them are, are settled because the plaintiffs don't want to get into a situation where they have to be able to prove scienter and miss the mark. Or and the company doesn't want the company being the D's and O's and the corporation that sued as well as the insurer doesn't want to be in a position where they incur all this exposure in the event that that penny does hit the plate. And from an economic perspective, you think just across the country and around the world, ultimately you really don't want a company to go under because it impacts jobs and lives and and not just shareholders but everybody oh. else that's in oh, of in case. And from your perspective, I mean, if you're a director of a corporation and your corporation went under, you know, that's a... That's a pretty bad pretty mark bad, from, my, exactly. from my own career perspective. Yeah. And there are directors that, that have had that happen. You think about the bankrupt... Well, you know, bankruptcy isn't a whole nother story because there are ways to protect with bankruptcy. But even still, you know, companies that have disappeared because of it is just not no, good. No, it's not good. And it's just not market changes that cause this to happen either. No, that's right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So if I'm a director and I'm looking at potentially joining a board, we talked about this a little earlier, and I want to look at the DNO. Obviously, if you're in an interview situation, if you bring up DNO, this is a hint to anybody listening. If you are looking to join a board and you're in an interview situation and the first thing you bring up is the question on DNO, chances are you're more concerned about CYA as opposed to looking at the, the real job that you're there to do. At least that will be the perception that will come across. So that's just a, a quick tip and a note. <laughs> Don't look at DNO first before you question the opportunity to serve and do good. But if you are a director and you've gone through all the, the due diligence, they on you and you on them, and you've decided both together that this is now an opportunity where you can serve not just the, the, um, the executives of the company and the employees and the customers and the shareholders, but... What you want to concern, you're concerned about the liability. So how do you actually even start looking at a policy? That's a good question. Um, first, you want to, uh, if, well, if you're, if you're coming on to the board and you're looking for whether there's coverage, I don't think there's an issue as to when coverage attaches, because presumably coverage had attached well prior to you joining the board. Okay. But but if you're if you're looking for if if you've been on the board a long time, you never had insurance, um, and now you're looking to get insurance for the first time, you may want to look at when coverage first attaches. So your liability can actually extend before you join the board. It can. The liability can possibly extend. Because well, the wrongdoing or something has happened well in advance and you should have known before you joined. Exactly. Okay. And that, exactly. The, the idea is that you should have... Um, Done your they're, homework? They're, right. There may be, have been some ongoing wrongful acts and that wrongful Whether they act, were exposed right. or not. Right. And those wrong... And right. And uh, the way an insurer would look at those ongoing wrongful acts, and if there's a continuum of the wrongful acts, 
those acts would be looked at from the inception time. And if that inception occurred before you the inception the board. of coverage, right. right, there could be a problem. Interesting. So yes, you want to you want to figure out when coverage attaches and whether you know this is a clean slate, whether the coverage goes way back uh, or not. Secondly, you want to look at the limits of liability. Are the limits of liability adequate for the size of the company? If if you have um, a five million dollar policy, say, and you're a, a mid cap company, a billion dollars or more in capital, that's not going to be adequate coverage. So what what is the, is there an average rule for what is considered adequate? I'm not sure if I'd say an average rule. I would say um, for me personally, sort of a, just sort based of on like my experience. The red zone right, or the black zone? Just based on my experience. If I, if I were looking at a, a corporation that would have, say, over a billion dollars of assets put into a mid cap, and that corporation would be faced with a securities class action, depending upon publicity involved and and how egregious the alleged wrongful acts are. I mean, you know, you could easily be spending um, ten to twenty million dollars in defense costs uh, on that. So, wow. yeah, so, so you so you need to have a policy that's significant enough to cover both the cost of defense and have money left over to settle the case for. That's, I mean, who knows how big it could be, yeah, right? Because exactly. the, the extent of liability and the litigiousness of society in general is just growing. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you can incur you know, millions of dollars of defense costs before you even begin the discovery right. process um, just on the motion practices alone, which typically occur when a security class action is first filed. One of the things I'd like to cover here is you'll hear a lot of directors who have some level of familiarity with Dino talk about side A, B, C, D, and you've got the whole side offering. Yes. Sounds like a menu at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> it does. It does. I, Which is a little I confusing. I thought of it in that Because I don't know whether I want the mushu guy, you know, guy pan or, you know, the, the spring rolls. Yeah. Then, uh, I, I would recommend you, you, you order it all. Order it all. Order it all. So, so what sides okay. do I want to add with my, okay, well, my meal? Well, <laughs> well, side A typically refers to direct insurance. It's a, it's a situation where the directors and officers can't seek indemnification from the company and they're on their own. Cannot. Cannot. Okay. okay. And they're on their own. And so side A responds to provide direct coverage to the directors and officers. That's a more of a personal Correct. Okay. Now, it'll happen typically in a situation where, A, the directors and officers, for some reason or another, are not entitled to indemnification. Okay. Or B, if the company's bankrupt. All right. There's no money to... There's no money in which to indemnify the directors exactly. and officers. Side B is typically a situation where corporate indemnification is made available. And unlike side A, the coverage available under side B is actually coverage that is used to reimburse the corporation directly for amounts that it pays to the directors and officers by way of indemnification. Mm -hmm. So side A goes to the directors and officers directly, side B goes to the corporation directly in the form of reimbursement coverage. Okay. And then there's side C. And side C is coverage that applies to both the corporation directly for itself, mm -hmm. as well as the directors and officers for themselves when the corporation and the directors are sued jointly in connection with a securities class action. Okay. So this happens quite frankly when there's an acquisition or divestiture. There's a, there's a change in control that's right. happening. Often. 
there's a restatement. It's almost a trigger that happens now. Sadly, that's yeah. true. Uh, it happens when there's a restatement. Correct. Okay. Um, the last thing the CEO wants right. or board wants. Right. It, it happens when the company typically makes an announcement that they're not going to make expectations after having given you know, encouraging messages. To Better them. to under, uh, was it under promise and over deliver? Wonderful advice. <laughs> not done <laughs> often advice. enough, I think, right? <laughs> no, not often enough. Um, but, you know, look, you have, a, you have a very aggressive class action plaintiff bar, and they're going to come up with great theories of liability, whether they're really credible or not. And right. they'll, they'll make allegations and, and hope that one of those allegations will stick on the wall and they'll be able to take that forward to um, not necessarily trial, but at least to the, through the litigation mm-hmm. process. I know of, of a particular case, and I won't say the company, obviously, where there was a situation that a CEO was considered taking some risks and that they should not have within the company and was considered liable for those risks. The CEO is no longer with the company, but that liability situation, the, the CEO is, no, is not being held personally and financially liable. The DNO is covering it. Yeah, you are, your eyeballs pop out of your head. <laughs> Mine did the same thing too, okay, because okay. it was not just the CEO, it was a CFO who was following the CEO's rules and everybody else. So, you know, you've got a CEO giving direction underneath and those following uh, you know, behind it and a board who's also not being held liable, which is, which is interesting. There's been a change of control of the company since. Wow. Okay. So this, I mean, having side B, it sounds like, would really cover this, or B and C really covers this. It could. Although the sort of situation you're describing, I'm not talking about the results, but just the, the, the conduct itself. I mean, it, it seems to me that it would trigger a question in my mind as to whether there was adequate board oversight. And if there wasn't adequate board oversight, I suspect that some plaintiff lawyer reading the newspaper would say, ah, I bet there's a derivative action here, Mm -hmm. which is different from a securities class action. Again, it has to be filed by a shareholder. So the plaintiff lawyer would have to find a shareholder who has a stake in the company and who had shares at the time of the wrongful act in question. Correct. Uh, And and for derivative action, still has a stake in the company. And that derivative action would be an action that the shareholder would file on behalf of the corporation to gain the right to sue in the name of the corporation for wrongful So acts. they're actually suing as if they were the corporation suing the, the corp, let's say, Corporation A. Yes. We'll call it, you know, Acme Corporation ABC, right? Yes. Is now given the, the suit the, or the, the case is saying that that entity is now suing on behalf of the shareholders the executives. Right. Is that correct in, That's in that right. understanding? And, and, and what's, what really differentiates a derivative action from the security class action, to make it clear, is that the derivative action, if there's any recovery, that recovery goes to the corporation itself. It goes to the corporation. Interesting. Where in the securities class, so when the securities class action, the recovery goes to the shareholders, shareholders. themselves. So, so this brings into question whether a corporation is an individual. This really sort of brings this whole issue to light on a higher plane. It does, right? indeed. Absolutely. The ingi- right. The individual is, is, is now the grievance. corporation. Yeah, yeah, has a grievance. And, and it's, it's the shareholder who's acting as a representative of the corporation to make corporation whole. Fascinating. Right? Yeah. So another question I, I had now, we've gone through all of this. We've, we've looked at our DNO. We've, we've, we're now serving on the board and it's time for us to leave and step down from the board. Or we're too old or there's been some other issues in our lives or we could be asked not to stand for re-election, right? 
you leave the board, something comes up within two years after you've left the board. As, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the DNO policy is typically an annual policy that needs to be reviewed and updated, just like your auto insurance, correct? That's correct. So if you leave and you assume that you were still part of that policy and covered under that policy, two years out, you find out that there is a case that comes against the board and the company, and you have been taken off that policy oops, by accident, you are fully exposed? Hopefully not. If that director and officer who leaves the board... um, It's like a five-year look back, kind of like Medicaid. No, exactly. Exactly. But there's a a provision in the policy, which is called the discovery option. Mm -hmm. And if that director and officer is adequately represented, either by the corporation itself or by his own attorneys, his or her own attorneys, that corporation, uh, that director and officer, I'm sorry, would, through their own attorney or the corporate counsel, make sure that notice is given to the, corpor- uh, to the insurer of everything that they're aware of that could possibly give rise to a claim in the future. And that notice, which is called a discovery notice, mm-hmm. has to be written in a, an artful way. way so that they can identify potential wrongful acts on the part of the director's that may give rise to a claim. They have to identify what those potential wrongful acts are. They have to speculate what the possible claims could be, mm-hmm. which is possible. It, right. it's, done, it's done on a regular but basis. But how, how would you know what the possible claims would be if you're not sure what the complaints might be or what, even what might be discovered? Well, that's a good question. All right. It's a long time ago now. Enron, those directors, they should have known where was the board. But so much was happening under those layers. That, you know, the, the old adage, you know, nose in, fingers out, you know, maybe fingers in is not a bad thing in some well, cases, no, right? Well, and that, no, and that's true. Although because of cases like Enron, right. there, there should be lawyers out there representing corporations and directors and officers that can specifically cast the potential wrongful acts, failure to focus on the financial statements for this particular right. policy year, which could give rise to a you know, securities or derivative action. And typically, those letters are cast in the form of what's called a laundry list mm-hmm. that are typically sent to the DNO insurer at, right at the end of the policy period. Million page book. Sometimes they can really be they can really be thick. I yeah. mean, and, and I can tell you from someone in the claim side who's reviewed these laundry lists. I mean, they're very artful. Just throw it in. Yeah, yeah, and and they're thrown in in, in an artful way. But if that DNO is properly represented. The laundry list would be submitted to the carrier, and that director and officer would be protected for future claims arising out of that those wrongful acts, which are during the term of their service. Right for the the wrongful acts during the terms of the service. So the future claims could fall outside the terms of the service, but as long as notice of the wrongful acts are given during the terms of the service, uh, are made in connection with the term uh, actions during the term. They're um, protected. In the meantime, that director has to hire their own attorney? Yes or no. And cover those costs? Yes and or no. I would think there are corporations who are charitable enough, if I could use that term. Depends upon the size of the corporation and how deep the pockets are, right? And it's not even a question of how deep the pockets are, as long as there's insurance. The in-house counsel or or outside counsel may have a a sense of need to 
protect that director and officer, whether or not he or she is still serving on the board. So don't be a a PITA director. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Make sure that you've got friends on the board and that you make friends with your general counsel and that they love you You forever and ever. That's good advice for life. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you want to live in the world, in in this world. You know, not everybody uh, does that. That's true. That's true. Uh, it makes it a lot easier. But yes, at the end of the day, right, you, you, you definitely want to maintain good relationships and you want to make sure that, um, look, it's in the interest of the corporation to take sure. care of their f- past directors and officers because they don't want to create a reputation that they throw them to the sharks because no. who would want to serve on that board? It, it just all brings to, to head that you know, being, being a director is not for the faint of heart. Yes. At one point, Again, going back to the scenario of the local pharmacist, the local... You know, Go in doctor. with your eyes open, yeah, right? Yeah, at one point in, in the past, it was a situation of honor. You, you've made it in life. You know, you were a strong community member, and now you're on the board. Well, I got to tell but you, it, that it still happens today with corporations. <laughs> I mean, how yeah. many directors do we know yeah. today who would, I'll be blunt here, you know, kiss up to those who are directors when they weren't directors, and I want to be on a board. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And... They're nobody, and all of a sudden, there's somebody. And next, I'm you know, I'm so important. Right today, though, you got to go in with with a your little bit more humility. Wide, your eyes wide open, and humility as well. Right. But right. but you want your eyes wide open because yeah. it's something. It's it's a it's a dangerous position to be in these days. Right. Without proper protection. So we talked about the DNO side from that. Yes. But now as a director myself, do I want additional insurance to protect my own personal assets? outside of the corporate DNO? How do I protect myself? That's a good question. And it isn't often that the director and officer who who doesn't have a substantial you know, financial backing would be asked to give money to contribute towards the settlement of, of a case. Um, it, would, it would really only occur where A, the director and officer who's been asked to personally f- help fund, contribute to the, the settlement amount, would have acted in such a way where, where there would be questions as to whether or not there would be really coverage in the mm-hmm. first place because the conduct is really right. dishonest or, or some other coverage issues which would impact coverage. Or if it turns out that there's not enough coverage under the policy. I mean, I've seen situations where there hasn't been enough coverage under the policy and the directors have been asked to make contributions. But typically, those directors that have been asked to make contributions you know, have the financial wherewithal to do it. I mean, well, but that's not always the case. There are more and more people want to get on boards yes. or are interested in serving on boards at all levels. Right. And I think it's an admirable goal to want to contribute to the success, ultimately, of another corporation or entity with the life and professional skills that you've attained over the years, which is great. However, you know, there's all size of corporations going on and smaller mid-cap company may not be able to afford a bigger DNO policy. And with, again, you know, more and more outside scrutiny, when is enough not enough? And in response to that, in response to the original question. And, and the new director may be fairly naive right. about it without That's even right. knowing to contact somebody like you. Right. I, I guess, and I, I'm not giving legal advice, I'm speculating. No, that's fine. But in speculating, I suspect that director and officer you're talking about probably would want to make sure they have a hefty umbrella policy yeah. on top of their GL. Yeah. Um, it's like an old business law class that I took, which was fabulous, and I absolutely loved yeah. it. I, if it hadn't been for other things, I probably would have been a lawyer. But 
the uh, the professor would always go at the end of class and said, can you tell me about this, this, and this? And he said, well, I can't give you advice and I can't answer that question. But if you answer it, ask it this way, hypothetically. <laughs> so I would go in with this laundry list of questions, you know, before the class and after class and say, hypothetically, professor. And, and so we can say hypothetically. Good, that's a good response. That's a, yeah. Yeah. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, I think I would look to making sure I had an adequate amount of money in my umbrella, under an umbrella policy. Personal umbrella policy. A personal umbrella policy. Um, as opposed to putting everything in a trust and then protecting it that way as well? Or do you even consider doing that? I have not personally considered it, but as you bring the issue up, you know, I mean, it certainly makes sense. Um, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense, especially if you go onto the board of a company that you know is a little shaky. So you got to go home and check your your, <laughs> your own financial setup. <laughs> Thank you for that legal advice, Nancy. <laughs> Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> okay. Well, Perry, I'm going to cut it off right here because there's so much more that we can talk about. And what I like to do is so that everybody else knows, we're going to do part two. Wow. <laughs> so we'll do the international fund. We'll, we'll actually talk about particular cases. We'll do a part two. So everybody else knows who's listening here as well, who is a director or potential director. Perry and I are going to be putting together a program that you learn from Perry's expertise on what you need to cover personally yourself. We'll go over a whole range of things before you go onto a board, once you're in a board, things you need to talk about. And we'll have a, a really a series and education program that I think you will be really pleased with that you'll never be able to get anywhere else because of Perry's international experience and domestic experience. In large companies, small companies, it runs the gamut. But today, every corporation, no matter what your size, is typically doing business in the international markets, and that is opening up the liability at a, at a much broader scale. It is. Yeah, you're right. So thank you, everybody. I'm glad you could be here today at the Boardroom's Best. Again, as I said, if you have not subscribed, please do so. We are on five different networks. We're easy enough to find and we look forward to seeing you again at on or hearing you again on another show. Thanks, Barry. Thank you so much, Nancy. Terrific. Have a good day. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.resources.com rgp.com